email or text. This came as a very personal letter that was opened by someone just like each of us and, and was read just like we would read a personal letter with the very hand of the person who lovingly wrote uh, down the words. And so as Timothy's reading this, he's hearing this in a very personal, uh, very personal way. Last week, we left off with a, a hint of a song. As Paul was writing the letter, he breaks into what was probably a first century song. And so as the group of people who were Christians in Ephesus gathered together, uh, they would recognize some of the words that Paul had written. And it's probably that Paul reached into the hymnal of the day or the uh, common, a common a poem or song of the day. And he presents this to them when he says in chapter 3, I hope to come to you soon. Remember, this is Paul saying that very personal to Timothy. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. And the word household is the word just like house, just like where you are sitting right now. Uh, Paul says there's a certain way that we who are a part of God's house, those of us sitting in God's living room, there's a certain way that we conduct our lives. And the way we conduct our lives is very important. And Paul goes on to say that this household of God is the church of the living God. And that's a direct contrast to the non-living gods, the gods who, of course, in the Greek world were just carved uh, statues and idols. And this church of the living God is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. And the image that would come to mind there are those pillars that stood around the great temple of Artemis. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. So instead of a devotion to a, a false god who was worshipped in a temple supported by these huge pillars, Paul says, you are a part of a real house, a place where we worship the living God, which is surrounded, This these pillars uh, are the pillars of what is absolutely true. It's important to remember that today. And that's where Paul breaks into the song. He was manifested in the spirit, vindicated, or excuse me, he was manifested in the flesh, meaning he became, he was born in the flesh. He was vindicated by the spirit. He was seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. And so that was the the song that they probably sang on a regular basis. And Paul reaches in to say, this is the message that each of you carry. This message was sent to Ephesus, which is right there in the middle of the the map. You'll notice that Ephesus was strategically placed for the early growth of the church. So there are many of those early Christians, many of those you read about in Scripture, would have spent time in Ephesus. And, uh, And so as the gospel dropped into Ephesus, it also spread out quickly. You might say it went viral from all of these each of these cities all over the known world or the Mediterranean world at the time. And to understand the words that were written by Timothy, or excuse me, written by Paul to Timothy, it's important to understand the culture of Ephesus. Now, today we're going to read passages from chapter 4 in Timothy, and you'll notice these little hints, just, just phrases that are used, that if you lived in Ephesus and read them, you would know exactly what Paul was talking about. Now, we don't know what all of these phrases mean. But there are several now, because of archaeology, because of the work done by historians, we now are able to read phrases that were written in this letter to Timothy and recognize which ones would have just leapt off the page 
to people like Timothy or the first readers there in Ephesus because a phrase that Paul uses would directly connect to something when they look out their window they could see with indirect sight or it was a reference to something that was a part of their daily life. And of course, what pervaded the life of everyone in Ephesus was the worship of Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, it's important to recognize this is Artemis of the Ephesians because there is Artemis, the Greek goddess, of different areas around the known Greek world. Artemis was the daughter of Zeus. Zeus had a liaison with Leto. And you remember the big myth. Uh, Leto uh, was, uh, was pregnant with twins. The first of those two twins to be born was Artemis. And that was something of great pride that Artemis came first. And her mother labored another nine days for her twin, Apollo, to come out. And because Artemis came out, of course, as a Greek god, she had full capability to be helpful to her mother at this birth. She actually helped give birth to or helped her mother deliver Apollo, her brother. And so the Ephesians took great pride that it was their, uh, their goddess who came out first and who helped deliver her mother through childbearing or helped uh, to deliver Apollo, her younger brother. For this reason, because her mother had such a hard labor, Artemis asked her father Zeus, according to the myth, if she could never, in fact, requested that she never succumb to the arrows of Aphrodite, meaning that she would never be married, that she would remain a virgin, and anyone who worshipped her was forbidden from being married. And so if, uh, if there were priests or priestesses, if you would, in that uh, temple, uh, these would be individuals who were celibate. And so unlike some of the worship of other goddesses in other parts of the Greek world, the worship of Artemis, specifically Artemis of the Ephesians, was a worship of, uh, of celibacy. And so it, uh, this, was, this was the type of uh, town where people would actually, if they were honoring Artemis, they would, this was in the early days of what's called asceticism, uh, where people would abstain from sexual conduct or from marrying. And they would also abstain from certain foods, and you'll see that come out in one of the passages today. The point is that Artemis was looked to as the one who was the protector of the city. In fact, they had a phrase for her that you'll see a lot of time in inscriptions about Artemis, and that was Artemis Soteria. And that's translated means Artemis Savior. And so that was the phrase that they used for uh, Artemis. She was worshipped in this temple. Of course, this was the phrase we read last week where Paul talks about the church uh, being held up by these pillars and buttresses. And so the image that came to mind was that we do not follow pillars that hold up simply the roof of a temple. We worship as a part of the church that is buttressed, that has these uh, pillars that hold up what is absolutely true. And the people of Ephesus would have... Uh, gone for entertainment and education to two places. The first place they would go would be to the theater. And we've talked a little bit about the theater where people would rush in, not only for plays to, uh, to see what was going on. This is also where social education occurred. People would gather for the play, and the play was meant to teach people how to handle this or that uh, social issue. But the other place that people learned was in the gymnasium, the palestra. And so there was the Uh, actually near the theater. You can see the theater in the background of your picture here. There was a great gymnasium built. Now, the one that you're looking at now was built uh, somewhere between 50 to 100 years after this letter was written. But somewhere in Ephesus, there was a gymnasium, a place where young men went to exercise 
and also to learn. And so imagine a, uh, a, uh, a large uh, gymnasium where somebody might have membership or even a modern-day school like a high school where you have classrooms set up and then a large gym. And this is a place where young people would gather and exercise every single day and then go in for classes, places to learn. And there were also baths. There were baths that had hot water and baths that had cold water. And so it was really a fancy type of gymnasium. But this is a place where young men would go to exercise, not young women. And you remember that came up a few weeks ago when Paul told Timothy in the church, you let the women learn. But that was not true in the community where only men could go to the gymnasium and exercise and train themselves uh, for being great Ephesians. And so this is a depiction of what Ephesus would look like. You'll see on your screen there, the big theater stands out right in the middle of the screen. Uh, To your far left is the temple to Artemis. And right at the tip of the, uh, uh, right beside the theater is where you will see the gymnasium. Again, that gymnasium was built after the writing of this letter, but somewhere there in Ephesus was a similar structure where young men, even in Timothy's time, would have gone to exercise. Now, to understand the passage that we are about to read, the word study for today is the word faith. It's so important to know uh, what this particular word means when we read this next passage of Scripture. And maybe just a comment about word studies. I think a, a, a good skill to develop when you're reading any Scripture is to read the the scripture in its context. So whenever possible, try not to read just one verse or one small passage. Try to read the entire book within within which a passage is written, uh, or certainly read the context of whatever the passage is set in. And as you're reading through the passage, a great skill to develop is to let your eye catch common words and phrases. So if you see a word that just keeps showing up in a passage as you read, let your eye key in on that, and then go back and study. What does that word mean? What is, that, what is the uh, purpose of that word in the passage? Because if a word is used over and over and over again, it must be important. There's a reason that it's there. And the word that we're going to see sneak in, I'm going to show you several places where it actually sneaks in, even in the English translation to today's passage, is the word faith. So what does the word faith mean? The word faith in Greek is the word pistis, and it could mean one of four things. So let's see which one it meant in ancient Greece. The first possible meaning of the word faith is an expression of trust in a person, thing, group, or deity. So when we use the term faith and we say, hey, I have a lot of faith in you or a lot of faith in that or a lot of faith in uh, this, we're using faith in the sense of an expression of trust. You might remember the uh, old Star Wars movie where Darth Vader is uh, is trying to discipline one of the Empire so, uh, leaders or generals and uh, the general doesn't believe in the force. And so Darth Vader kind of tries to choke him, and he says, I find your lack of faith disturbing. And really what he's saying there is, uh, I find your lack of trust in me or this thing disturbing. So in some cases, when we say, I have faith in something, we're just talking about an expression of trust. Sometimes when we use the word faith, we're referring to the keeping of a commitment. So faith is the result of keeping that commitment. If I am faithful to my wife or faithful to a contract, what we are saying is that we are faithful to a commitment that's being made. We're sticking with what we have agreed to do. And sometimes people say, well, that's what faith is. 
The third way that we use the term faith, and probably most commonly in a popular cultural sense, is, is that faith would mean the accepting of assumptions without proof. Now think about how most of the time when we use the term faith within our culture, we're using it opposite of the word uh, uh, assurance or something we know. So there are things, you might have a bucket of things that you absolutely know, and then you have a bucket of things that, well, I have faith, this is true. A lot of times people will say that faith is somehow opposite of science, or the knowledge that we have from faith is opposite from the knowledge that we have in science. Now, this is an artificial distinction, which is not true at all, but that's the way the term seems to be used in our culture, where I might say, well, I don't have any scientific proof, but I have faith, you know, that this is true. That phrase or that use of the word faith would be completely foreign to Paul and to Timothy. And so it's so important before you read this passage that you separate in your mind what the word faith tends to mean today from what it meant to the original audience. And the word to the original audience meant, the fourth point here, it meant the product of a proof. In other words, uh, if I in the ancient world talked about faith, I was talking about something, not that I believed in the absence of proof. I'm talking about something that I believe and know because I have seen the proof, and I am convinced that it is true. So the example would be that if uh, if you were sitting on a jury, let's say in a modern court case, and uh, and and they're trying to decide did the did the accused person do it or not, and so the attorneys come out and they present their case on each side and then you on the jury go into the back room for deliberation and you take all the evidence and you lay it out in front of you and they're looking at the evidence you are convinced on what really happened and you come out and you render the verdict that 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 state of being convinced that you know what happened because you've looked at the truth is considered faith or pistis in the ancient world an example of that was when paul was speaking to the people in Athens, and he was giving that lecture to what would be a modern-day university uh, professor, or maybe even an argument before their sp- Supreme Court. And Paul gets to the end of his argument, and he says, you know there will be a day when God judges the world through one man, Jesus Christ. And then Paul says, he has given proof of this by raising him from the dead. And that word proof is actually the word pistis. Really, what Paul said is, God has given you faith in this by raising Jesus from the dead. So it's important to understand that whenever you see the word faith, it's not saying you, you have to believe this in spite of everything else you see with your eyes or ears or what you've tested. When you see the word faith in Scripture, what it means is you can take this to the bank. This is something that you can be confident in, not in spite of a lack of truth, but because you have seen what is true, what is real. And I think that's so important today as we get into the reading of 1 Timothy. So let's take a moment together to read now the words from 1 Timothy chapter 4. And let's see if we can hear this the same way Timothy did. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. So right out the gate, you notice Paul says that in latter times, the Spirit teaches us that people, some, will depart from the faith. And the word here, depart, doesn't mean that they'll just slowly slip away. It means to intentionally step away from the, and here's this word, 
faith. They'll intentionally step away from what they absolutely know or have a conviction of that is true. And they will then devote themselves. And so this is the opposite of stepping away. So they will step away from faith. But then the word devote there is they will adhere themselves like glue or Velcro against, you know, the right surface. That they will stick themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through in the insincerity of liars. The word there, insincerity, is the word, literally the word hypocrite. So they will stick themselves to hypocritical liars whose consciences are, are seared. There were many examples in the ancient world where in order to uh, claim that something belonged to you, you would take a hot iron and you would sear it. You know, many times that's done in a modern world with animals where you would brand certain animals. In the ancient world, you branded not only animals, you branded people so that if someone was your slave, they would have a particular you know, brand on them. When armies conquered other uh, communities and other countries, uh, as they took over a city, there would be some type of hot iron branding of something in the city to say this city now belongs to another city. So that if, if I conquered a city, I would set up a great statue within the, the forum of that city. And in the city, I would have one, maybe a horse that represents the community that I had just taken over. And there would be another uh, statue, which would be a larger horse, which represents my country. And then on the conquered horse, I would put a brand, the symbol of my country. And so that's the image that comes to mind here when Paul says that there are people who have stepped away from the faith, have left the faith, and have stuck themselves to things that are deceitful, things that are taught by hypocrites and liars, and they've allowed themselves to be branded, their conscience branded as belonging to something that's false and not true. They forbid marriage, and now you know why that phrase is there. They forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. And so here Paul, without saying it, is saying, you know who I'm talking about. Because <laughs> just, up, just up the hill or just down the road is the temple where you know they're, they're telling people not to participate in things that God has made and to stay abstinent from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who, now I bolded this so it would stand out to me and to you, but it's meant to be food and marriage is meant to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe. The word believe there is a derivative of the word faith. So those who have faith and know the truth. So you see how this word keeps coming up. We, Paul, in writing to Timothy, says that, uh, that there are some who are pulled away, who stick themselves to a false teaching, and they don't realize that God has given us all of this. Uh, to be received with uh, thanksgiving because we have faith and because we know what is true. For everything God created or everything created by God is good. I'm going to pause to let that sink in. Everything created by God is good. I think it was uh, St. Augustine who said that God is the cause of all causes, though not of all choices. So God is the cause of all causes. Everything he made is good, but that doesn't mean that every choice made by those using something God made is good. But Paul goes on to say that nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, a recognition. This is something given by God, for it is made holy 
It is made set apart by God by two things. First, the logos of God, the word of God, and by prayer. And the word prayer here is not the word petition, as if to say, God, please, can I have? It's the word conversation, uh, a interaction with God. And so what God has made is good, and it is made holy, if received with thanksgiving, uh, and, and is made holy by the word of God, by, by, the, by God's intent, by his purpose for that, and in conversation with God. And so you see what Paul is doing with Timothy is saying, your communion, your conversation is with the living God who made all of this. And so he's, he's reminding Timothy, you have within you a message that is so much more powerful than anything the people in your community have to rely on. And then he says, here's what you do with that. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant. The word servant there is the same word for deacon that we read about last week. You will be a good servant, although here it's probably not referring to a, a office or a position of designation. It's just a reminder. The word servant, the word deacon, is minister or servant. And Paul says you will be a good deacon of Christ. You will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, being trained in the words of, and here it is again, the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. And the word followed there is the idea of the doctrine that, not that, that the doctrine is out there and you're walking behind it. It's uh, that you are following this good teaching that you're walking beside, uh, you know, that, uh, that you're walking with. And so Paul says, says, Timothy, you are being trained in words of faith and what is true that you can be convinced in. So have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. And now you know some of those myths that would have been in Ephesus. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Now, I like this word, train yourself, uh, the gymnase. It means to, uh, to get in there and exercise in the gymnasium. So this, is, this word here is, is referring to exactly what the young men in Ephesus would have done, going to the local gymnasium, spending time each day exercising, either in this large field or in, in small rooms, wrestling, lifting, training their body, and then going into one of the classrooms and actually training their mind. And uh, so again, we have this image of a high school where there's a focus on physical education, but also, you know, the mental education and Paul reaches into his, his, uh, his vocabulary there of words and says, here's a word that, that explains what you need to be doing, not for your body, but for your soul. Train yourself to be godly, to take on this, this quality of being reverent to God. This word godliness does not mean train yourself to be religious. In fact, that's a very different word in Greek. The word here, uh, godly or, or godliness, refers to that inner reverence for God. has nothing to do with what other people see, has nothing to do with what you might do in a public setting. Uh, Godliness has to do with a relationship directly with the living God. And Paul says that is something that you train. That is something that you work on. And he says, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training, which they're doing down in the gymnasium, is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. It's funny that he says that bodily training is of some value. The word there in my translation says some. 
I don't know if any of yours has the word little. The word there is in Greek is actually, it's small, oligos. He says, for physical training, it's of a little value, <laughs> you know. And so we uh, think of how much time we spend working on our physical bodies. But then he contrasts that with godliness, which has value. And here he says, has value for, now think of the biggest volume of anything you can possibly imagine. It has value for everything. Now think of how much time we spend in our lives worrying about our health. Think about what we do to train our bodies, whether it's in exercise, which is a good thing, and I fully support the exercise that we, uh, uh, you know, that we do and that we're encouraged to do. Uh, think of the amount of time that we spend into thinking of eating healthy and doing things that are healthy and taking vitamins and taking medication and how quickly we turn to the doctor anytime that we feel unwell. Think of the resources right now in our world. We are in 2020, the midst of a pandemic. Think of all of the resources going into uh, every single country, every single community in the world right now to stop the spread of a disease. Think of how much effort is spent into preparing ourselves to be and trying to keep ourselves healthy. This idea of self-preservation is on, foremost on everyone's mind. And what Paul tells Timothy is you don't neglect that. That is of small value. But he says, Timothy, keep things straight. What is of eternal value is godliness. Train yourself to know the living God because that's what has value, not just for today, not just for being healthy this week, not just for even this current pandemic, Training yourself for godliness is what has value for all things, forever. And so put the weight of your energy towards training for godliness. And not only this life, as he says, because this godliness holds promise uh, for this present life and also the life to come. And here's where he stretches it out and says, it's not just for the here and now. The godliness that you are training yourself for is preparing you for ever and for a time that does not end. And then he uses a phrase here, this is a trustworthy saying and deserves full acceptance. And I like that word trustworthy. Guess what word that is? It's the word faith. He says, for this is a faithful word, is actually the, the uh, phrase there, but the, a derivative of the word pastis is used. And it deserves your full acceptance because it is true. You're being asked to believe this, not in spite of what you know is true, but because it is true. For to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God. And notice that phrase. Paul uses this several times in 1 Timothy, specifically because it's written in Ephesus where people would point to the temple just up the road and say Artemis is Savior. Artemis Soteria. She is our protector. She is one. And, and Paul would say she's not even alive. And some other commentators later writing in that era would ask if if Artemis is your protector, why is it that she has to have guards in front of her temple? If she cannot even protect her temple, how do you expect that she would protect you? And of course, that was sort of a ribbing way of just saying she's not really alive. And yet Paul uses a different take. Instead of making fun of Artemis throughout all of this, he says, let me just show you what is real, what is true. And you put your sights on that. We have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior. 
the soter, the very same word used about Artemis, Paul says about God. He is the Savior. But get this, we don't rush into stadiums uh, yelling at the top of our voice, great is God of the Alaskans. Great is God of the Anchorageians. What do we call people in Anchorage? The, <laughs> the people who live in Anchorage, yeah. We, we, don't, we don't say great is the God that only applies to us. Instead, Paul says, we serve the Savior of all people. I'll pause to let that sink in. That we serve the God who is the Savior of people in China, in Italy, in Europe, across Africa, across South America, Central America, throughout Canada, throughout the North America. Go everywhere in the world that your mind goes. Right now, God is the Savior of all people. And especially those who, and here's the word again, who have faith. And the word especially there, just he's zooming in to say, God has set up the ability for all people to be rescued, to be saved, to be made right again is what the word saved there means. Uh, And especially, this is designed for people who have faith. There is nothing that you possess with which you can turn the head of God except one thing, and that is faith. Faith is the thing that will stop Jesus in his tracks and say, who touched me? Faith is the thing that allowed. you remember when the man was lowered through the roof where Jesus stops his teaching uh, and turns to the man and, you know, stops what he's doing. There's nothing that stops God uh, the, the way faith does. It is that firm conviction in the truth of God. It is what connects us to God. That is what training for godliness means. It means to develop this faith, this conviction in what is true, what is real. And it's through that faith that God is solving the world's greatest problem, which is the problem of sin and selfishness, that focus on self-preservation that causes one man to do something against another person and allow that, that uh, perpetuation of harm throughout the whole world. The only way to rescue the world is through the saving grace of uh, Jesus Christ. And it's through what God has done by allowing people of faith, those who have this firm conviction in what is true, to be uh, God's instruments through which he is working here in this world. But this is a powerful message that Paul gives to Timothy and in essence says that we don't serve some idea that makes us feel good. This is not a myth that helps explain what's real or a common myth that pulls a group of people together. He says, you are following the living God who is actually working right now on saving the entire world. So command and teach these things. And then a beautiful phrase. Now, the next phrase we're going to be reading, uh, Paul speaking very personally to Timothy. He says, Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth. This is how we know Timothy was not an older guy. I mean, he was a young man. We don't know exactly what age. uh, But in their culture, people would have looked down on him because he had not lived long enough. He did not have enough experience. He would not have been looked on as being wise. And Paul says, don't let them do that. Do not let them look on you because of your youth. But set the believers, there's the word again, the those who have faith, set them an example in your speech, conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. The word example there uh, is not necessarily a word that says um, do things in a way other people would follow. The word example there is the word 
uh, tupos. It's where we get the word type. So you know that uh, when you, like in an old typewriter, when you'd actually hit the keys and it would slam the key down real hard and it would leave a mark, uh, that's actually based on the concept of movable type, you know, that Gutenberg put to good use way back in the day by taking those little uh, pieces or letters that were what we call type, movable type, and then a press would come down and press on that and it would leave a mark. That actually comes from this word type. When you go back into history where somebody would take an instrument and with a blow they would leave a mark on either a page or a piece of clay or something. Um, this word was also used in John when you might remember when Thomas was saying, I will not believe until I see the marks on his hands. The word there is tupos, type. So it's a, it's a mark that is left by uh, a stamp or a force you know, coming down. And that's the word Paul uses here. He says, Timothy, don't let people look down on you because you're young, but you be that mark left by the stroke of God on what happens to a life that is, is a life of faith. And you be this example. You be this stamp or this mark in what you say, in what you do, in how you love, in your firm conviction in what is true, in other words, your faith, and in the purity of your life. And until I come, devote yourself to public reading of Scripture or to, uh, to reading. I like that word, uh, reading, in ancient Greece. It meant to know again. <laughs> so when you read something, you're actually reminding yourself of it. You're knowing it a second time. And he says, devote yourself to that, to exhortation and to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy or by a, uh, a word from God, when the council of elders laid their hands on you. This word elders is different than the word elders used before in Timothy. This is the word that we'll see later used by Titus, uh, talking about older men, the presbyters, if you will. So when this council of older men, those who had followed Christ for a long time, laid their hands on you, practice these things. You hear that again. Practice the idea of immerse yourself, meditate on them so that all may see your progress. Now, notice what Paul's doing with Timothy. He's saying, Timothy, you live your life in such a way that it will be seen, not for your own fame, not for your own uh, glory. You, you do these things so that other people will see your progress. It's in the same sense that Jesus says, you are the light of the world. City set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp, put it under a bowl. Instead, he says, you let your light shine before men that others will see your good works and praise your Father who's in heaven. The idea here is, is, Timothy, live your life this way so that other people see that mark left on your life and they make the same decision to follow Christ. Keep a close watch, he says finally, on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. He's not saying Timothy would do the saying, saving He's saying that if you live this way, it's not only going to work for you. This is not some selfish self-preservation. You are in this together with the rest of the world. And by sticking to this teaching, you will save yourself and your hearers. So hear the message in a very personal note. Paul tells Timothy that you will have street credibility, if you will, if you follow Christ within your culture and stick to these things. Allow that mark that Christ has put on you to be something seen by other people because people will see it and say, we know Timothy 
and therefore we know this message is true. Let me give you a quick example of that, and then we'll close. Uh, We are in the midst, again, 2020, the COVID-19 pandemic spreading all over the world, and many people are are obviously afraid of what this might do to their community, to their culture, to the economy, to uh, personal uh, family members that they care about. And so a physician was asked recently, how do you what do you say to people who are afraid in the midst of a pandemic? And so this uh, physician was asked by, it was a national news organization. They said, what do you say to people who are afraid? And the, the physician answered, fear has a dehumanizing effect, both on those tomb who, who or score, excuse me, both those toward whom we project our fear as well as on ourselves. We cannot allow fear, however reasonable it might seem, to dominate us and drive our decisions. We live in an interconnected world. The well-being of all of us is directly connected to the well-being of each of us. The best way to ensure self-preservation is through joining in the suffering of others and together finding a way forward. And do you hear that personal message saying the only way to really save ourselves Self-preservation is not to run away from that which scares us, but it's to join those who have fear and for us to get through this together. Well, do you know who said that? That came from Dr. Kent Brantley, uh, a physician who in 2014, right out of residency, went to Liberia and was there less than nine months when there was an outbreak of Ebola. You might remember this is the physician, the U.S. physician, who contracted Ebola and ended up surviving it. He and his family now live in Zambia. After recovering from Ebola, he took his family. They went back, and they are now preparing Zambia for this pandemic. And so the news organizations turned to him as somebody who survived a deadly uh, virus during a previous epidemic. And they said, How do you, what do you say to people who are afraid? And then he gives this beautiful message saying, really, the only way forward, uh, f- the only way to ensure self-preservation is by joining in the suffering of others, walking through this together. Well, the reason I share that with you is to say, doesn't that message carry so much weight when you know that it's spoken by somebody who has walked this road before, who carries the marks of an epidemic in his body? Well, that's exactly what Paul is saying to Timothy. He's saying in your community, in your culture, you bear the marks of someone who has been stamped on by Christ, and it's those marks that will save not only yourself. This isn't just self-preservation. It's what others in your community will see and turn to. And when they say, what is it that gives you this hope? When you give that answer, that my hope is in the living God who is the Savior of all people, then that mark is what people uh, see and say, I know this is true because I see it in you and I know your life. Well, that's the message that Paul gives to, to, uh, to Timothy. And I hope in those words that you are able to find uh, a way of applying that to your life and recognize you have neighbors, family members, people that you work with who are watching how you handle current events today. And through what they see, people will know that God is the one who is the Savior of the world and will find uh, comfort and ultimately, we pray, salvation because of what they see in you, they will seek God for themselves. So with that, I uh, conclude our class here for today. We're going to make a transition uh, to worship, but let's conclude with a prayer. Our Father, thank you for a chance to read your word. We pray as we transition to a time of worship that 
uh, you will enter into the heart, mind, and home of each person who turns their heart towards you, that you'll accept our worship as a attempt to train ourselves to be godly, as we've read here today, and in an attempt to honor you, our God, our Savior, the living God. We pray for your blessing today in Jesus' name.